You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, From Burning to Blueprint, Rebuilding Black Wall Street After a Century of Silence with Kevin Matthews. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. I am ecstatic. Look, I used a new word (laughs) other than excited. I'm ecstatic that you could be here listening in on this conversation with me. I am proud to bring you this conversation with Kevin Matthews. We are going to be talking about an important subject topic, and I really want to just get into it. Kevin Matthews is the author of the book, From Burning to Blueprint, Rebuilding Black Wall Street After a Century of Silence. From Burning to Blueprint tells the story of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. As the title suggests, it's more than a historical account of what happened over a century ago when the town of Greenwood, a affluent African-American community, was obliterated. This attack happened 100 years ago. Actually, Memorial Day was the, this Memorial Day that just passed, it happened to be the anniversary, the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And it was an area in Greenwood where African-Americans were thriving. There was a business district surrounded by residential areas. And due to some events, Kevin and I will talk about this massacre happened. And I think it's really important. And I think, I know it's really important to discuss these topics, to talk about our history. It's relevant. It impacts where we are today. And unless we understand what happened and really try to rectify and figure out solutions to the problem and not just solutions that we uh, can do, but the government, the top to bottom solutions, and then in the bottom to top solutions that we can do as people, but that, that the government needs to do is important. Let me tell you a little bit more about Kevin Matthews first, though. Kevin holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Hampton University, a certificate in financial planning from Northern Western University. And Kevin Matthews is a former financial advisor. He has helped more than 15,000 individuals plan for their retirement, in addition to managing more than 140 million assets during his advisory career. In 2017, he was named one of the top 100 most influential financial advisors by Investopedia. He also is a born and raised Tulsa resident. So you'll hear in our conversation why it's so important for Kevin to talk about this, why he wrote the book. But then we're going to get into the history of Tulsa, what happened, how it impacts us still today, and then most importantly, solutions potential solutions that can help move us forward in the right direction. I did an episode a while ago called the Black Tax episode with Sean Rochester. I believe that was one of the most impactful episodes that I've done because it really dived into the Black Tax. It explained what it is, what it came from, where it comes from, the history of Black Americans, African Americans in this country, and the Black Tax. So That's another really important episode you should check out after you listen to this one. That's episode 158, episode 158 with Shauna Rochester. And I believe that this Tulsa conversation 
is going to be an important and impactful episode. And I always say this, please share this with someone who needs to hear this information. We were not taught this in school. At least I wasn't. And I know a lot of people weren't. I know I posted this on my page on Instagram, the anniversary of the Tulsa, the 100 year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. And I had a couple of people say, I have no clue this happened. And I got to be honest, I didn't know that this happened. I recently found out about this a couple of years ago. And so it's really important to talk about these things and to figure out, to know our history, to figure out. And to know that what you see, the economic and social climate realities you see today did not just happen. (laughs) They have been derived from our history. And unless we know our history, it's going to be hard to change and find the solution. So share this with someone who needs to hear it. The Journey to Launch podcast is supported by Digital Federal Credit Union, DCU. Now, don't abandon all your mid- and long-term goals for some short-term fun. Look at how you can still save towards your future mid- to long-term goals while spending and reason for the things you want to do now. Here's a tip. If you can, contribute an additional 1% towards your 401k or add an additional $50 a month to your emergency savings. While these amounts may seem small, they could add up over time if you stay consistent. Check out DCU Saving Calculator to see how much you can save for your goals. To learn more, check out dcu.org. Once again, to learn more, check out dcu.org. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, journeyers, I am excited to bring you this very relevant, always relevant and important topic. And this guest that I'm really excited to talk to, I have Kevin Matthews on the podcast today. Hi, Kevin. Hey, how are you? Good, good. So I brought Kevin on the podcast to talk about his new book, From Burning to Blueprint, Rebuilding Black Wall Street After a Century of Silence, came out in May. And, you know, honestly, I know with um, the anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, which is what the book is about and rebuilding from there, that there was a lot of press and just people were paying more attention because of the anniversary of it, the 100 year anniversary. Yeah, 100 years. Yeah. But, you know, I thought, you know, this is relevant. We don't need, only need to talk about this during that time. <laughs> this is actually could be talked about anytime. So I'm glad you're on the show to shed more light on actually what happened. You are actually a resident of Tulsa. You were born in Tulsa, right? Mm-hmm. And so I want to talk through that and your book and the rebuilding of the Black Wall Street that you talk about. So welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So let's get into what happened in Tulsa. You know, I do want to get into your background because I know you have a lot of experience and overall time in the space and personal finance space and in investing. So you have a lot of gems to drop on that front. But I do want to get into what happened in Tulsa, why we need to be talking about it and what can be done to rebuild uh, Black Wall Street. Sure, sure. I think, you know, when it comes to historical conversations, 
I think it's extremely important to set the stage and set the context. I think, especially when it comes to Black history, we just kind of drop in and say, oh my God, this thing happened, and then everything was fine after that, right? Or everything was okay. And for Tulsa in the 1920s, especially early 1900s, there's a lot of racial animosity in Tulsa specifically um, and throughout the country. So 1919 was the red summer of 1919 where we saw perhaps the largest, I guess, group of attacks across the country. One of the the worst times for lynching was in, in 1919, but also in Tulsa. Tulsa itself was essentially the Wild West, where there were two white men that were lynched in 1919. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, prior to 1921, which just shows you like the mob was real. So that sets the stage. So on May 30th, 1921, this is before the attack, but um, a black man named Dick Rowland went into um, a building. He's a shoe shiner and tripped. And the story goes that he startled and scared a white lady who was operating the elevator. Newspaper came out and said it was attempted rape. Things escalate out of control and the massacre begins. But the reason why I started off with what happened in 1919 and what happened prior is because if you are a black Tulsan, right, you saw what happened in 1919, you know that two white men got lynched in the years before, you know that if a black man is going to be arrested, that it's not going to go well, right? So that's what caused a contingent of World War One black veterans to assemble at the courthouse in an attempt to protect Dick Rowland because they did not want to see the exact same thing happen. And when you get that small group of defenders that were there and a white mob together in that type of environment, uh, one shot rang out and then that's when the attack began. Now, can you, I mean, this is more just for my education. When you say the two white people were lynched, did it have something to do with the fact that they were assisting black people or was that a solely separate? Do you know like what led to their lynchings? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, this this was just it was mob rule and mob justice. So in, in one case, it was an armed robbery. It was a guy who got into the back of a taxi cab, tried to ro- uh, rob a taxi driver and shot him. And then the taxi driver ended up dying. He went to jail. Right. The mob showed up, got him out of his cell and hung him. It was so bad and so telling of the of what Tulsa was like at that time that police officers were directing traffic to park to see this man, get, a white man, get hung. And they sold the rope by the inch. And again, that's just a white dude. So, you know, you know, for a fact that if anybody of any skin color, it just wasn't going to go well. So that, that like really sets the stage. That's something I didn't know until I started really researching it that had the black community on high alert because that's how quote unquote justice was served in Tulsa, Oklahoma at that period of time. Wow. Okay. Thank you for like going deeper into that. Now, Mm -hmm. after the gunshot rang out, what happened? Yeah. So white people had, I think it was close to a 27 to one advantage in terms of, of population and in terms of like the mob versus armed black men. So it was uh, one black veteran who who was armed and a white man tried to disarm him. And that's where the, the shot rang out. So after that, um, the mob essentially pushed those black men back into the Greenwood district, which consisted of about thirty five hundred square blocks. They some of those men were, were deputized. So the Tulsa Police Department at that point in time were not necessarily handing out badges, but saying, hey, look, you know, for the next 24 hours, next 48 hours, you are a sworn deputy. and we need you to, sh- to shoot to kill. We need you to, to stamp out 
what's what's going on right now. So they burned, they uh, bombed in some cases, some reports say, and they killed their way um, through the Greenwood District. More than 300 people, 300 Black people were killed. And to this day, 100 years later, we have not found all of those mass graves. I think the count as of today is around 15 or so, a little bit more than that. And we just started digging last year. And that, that kind of shows you how suppressed that entire event was and why it's still so relevant today, because a lot of these chapters of history are still being written. And so much of this had been suppressed up until 2001 or so. Yeah. Now, can you describe what Greenwood was? So Greenwood was is a district within Tulsa that most of where most of the black people lived. That is that is correct. So it was known as Black Wall Street, but when you compare it um, more accurately, it's really a black main street. It was an, an oasis for black people to come and sustain like a very, very good middle class. So, for example, in most other parts of the South, you were a sharecropper and that was that was pretty much it. Your your options were very, very limited. In Tulsa, though, you could start there, but but become a business owner. You could get a decent paying job because of the oil boom at that point in time. And there were a lot of a lot of jobs in and around that space for people to get paid quite well in a place that Black people congregated together and really purposely circulated the dollar. So it was really a, more of a Black Main Street. You had entrepreneurship, you had great paying jobs, and it was a place where you could actually see social progress for African-Americans at that point in time. Mm. So it's presumed not only, and I've saw this in you know documentaries and doing my best to read up on what happened in Tulsa, that it was almost like this event that prompted the mob and prompted the African-Americans and Black people there to protect, try to protect Dick Rowland, is that there was also fear that there was such status among these African-Americans in the town, right? So almost it's like ripe for this combustion of really, like literally, flames for that part of the town. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and that's the interesting part. So there, again, like going back to like that, that racial animosity and that fear really of Black excellence, you had newspaper articles concerned and saying in writing that the fear of Tulsa becoming what they call Muskogatized. So for context, is a smaller town about 45 minutes outside of Tulsa called Muskogee. At this point in time, it was majority black. So the newspaper articles saying like, how do we prevent Tulsa from becoming a black town, right? You had articles uh, from pastors at this point in time saying that, you know, the fact that they went off to World War One, they're armed now, they're organized, and they know how to essentially fight back, which, you know, from a pastor, you're like, really? This is what you're afraid of? But also fight back against what? Like, what have you been doing this entire time that they would need to fight back for? So the, the fear that Black people, particularly, particularly Black men, since that's who fought in wars at that point in time, were organized, they were trained, they had fought in one, and that was the thing too, since we quote unquote won World War I, um, white people at that point in time were really afraid of that and they needed something or wanted something to what they felt was to put Black people back in their place. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the aftermath of what happened? Like, so how long did the massacre last and what was the immediate kind of result? Yeah. So it depends on who you ask. There there are some people, my brother included, that said, maybe it's not done burning yet. So some people say to this day, but 
technically only 24 hours. And it's, I don't want to say only 24 hours as, as if that was short because it was 24 hours of, of horror. But it was from May 31st to June 1st. And immediately after that, so essentially at that 35 block area was completely destroyed. More than 10,000 people homeless and displaced. Millions of dollars lost in, in property damage and then lives lost as well. Up to 300 is what we consider the official count today. Um, however, that was undercounted and was common to be undercounted back at the initial point in time. No one was ever arrested or went to jail. And, and Tulsa still hasn't necessarily recovered in many aspects, especially for the Black community. Yes. And it's important to set this context because there's so many people. I remember, so the anniversary of Tulsa occurred same as Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. And I remember posting about it on Journey to Launch. And I, I just knew there were some people who reached out and said, especially um, white people and some black people, honestly, that said, I never knew about this. This I never knew this was a, like even my recent post. They didn't know this had happened. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that we are talking about this to set the context of what we were going to talk about later on in the interview about rebuilding and mm-hmm. what things can be done to help. But I really just want to underscore how hard it was, one, to even get ahead at all after our so-called emancipation and being freed as slaves, but then to see a community that was building itself up to then get destroyed. And then almost there was no repercussions for that happening. They tried to hide it. They're still in some ways hiding it or not being forthcoming with what happened. Is It's just important to note that, that is still some of that is still going on right now. Yeah, a lot of that is going on right now. And I mean, there's just so much. So like I, again, grew up, born and raised really right on Greenwood. My middle school is on Greenwood Avenue. My dad's home where I grew up is one block to the left of Greenwood Avenue. And it was not a required subject in Oklahoma history uh, until the law passed last year. And that was because my dad was elected in office and he was the one that really pushed that to get passed. But also when we talk about hiding the history and the truth of what happened and finding out what's going on, Oklahoma, as well as other states, mostly in the South, were passing laws around critical race theory. And it's difficult to discuss a race massacre without discussing the legacy of white supremacy and how deep things went in Tulsa. So it's, it's extremely difficult and, and complex to discuss, but it's also really important to understand like the intentionality of what happened at that point in time and what continues to happen today. I think, again, we always think like, oh, boom, this thing happened, right? Or even in terms of of finance, like, oh, boom, now you're rich without really understanding like, oh, I've been saving for this for a long time. I did a lot of research. This is really intentional. Like generational wealth doesn't happen out of the blue. But also the generational poverty does not happen out of the blue either. And I think that's something that, that people need to understand. So in the context of the Tulsa Race Massacre, Hours after the attack, there was a a unanimous law that passed via city council that they passed a brand new fire code for the black district that made it really expensive for people to try and rebuild. They essentially burned and took your land, your property, and then passed a law that says, hey, look, you can no longer afford to even live here now. Deal with that, right? That's a part of it. And that, that group was called the Tulsa Real Estate Exchange. And, you know, you start to see like, wait a minute. How is this occurring here now, right? The insurance claims were not paid out because it was deemed a quote-unquote riot. And if you Google anything prior to 2018, 
2018, you're going to see nothing but the Tulsa race riot. And we had to to go back and re-examine that and why that word was used. It was used because of riot clauses and insurance claims. So people who lost their land did not get paid. People who, who lost their land initially weren't even allowed to rebuild. And that shows you a lot of, of why Tulsa still is with the black community where it is today, but shows you that generational wealth as well as generational poverty can be very intentional, right? It, it can take a while for those things to, to manifest or con- to continue to exist. Yes. And can you describe what Tulsa is like today and the disparity of wealth? Yeah. So again, I think that the key word is disparity. You, if you Google Tulsa right now, it'll tell you it's top 10 for entrepreneurial opportunity. They have all these programs to relocate people. They're trying to be a tech hub, so on and so forth. And that's true for a certain segment of the population. But for Black Tulsans, it's, it's not the same. They just built a brand new grocery store in North Tulsa, which is the, the Black district of town. Um, I think it's more than 80% of the entire Black population lives in this one area. But it, it it had been a food desert. I'll say that. You had a bunch of Dollar Generals. You did not have a fresh grocery store for years. Um, in 1921, we had more than a dozen grocery stores. We had two movie theaters. You have no movie theaters today. You have no real hospitals. You have one clinic, but no real hospitals on that side of town. We had Black doctors. We had all, all of these things 100 years ago, and you don't necessarily have it now. So it kind of shows you that there's a very stark contrast between the resources that African-Americans have in Tulsa versus the rest of the city. African-Americans in Tulsa have a shorter lifespan between, I think it's like from nine to 12 years less of just life that we have due to these circumstances versus people right across town. Um, so again, that shows you how deep it goes, how important it is to to look at history, and how important it is to to reclaim Black wealth and be properly compensated for the things that have occurred to us due to the city, state, and federal governments. Yeah. And what do you know the realized loss or what was lost in today's dollars? Yeah, there are a few estimates that have floated around based on a ton of different things. Um, I want to say the first official estimate was like $1.8 million. Um, which is in today's dollars is close to like 24 million or so. Um, again, those those numbers change and float around as we learn more information. And that's the important part, too, is because people really didn't start asking these questions uh, up until maybe five or 10 years ago. So those those numbers are constantly changing. And growing up in Tulsa. So your family also like generations are from Tulsa. Yes. Yes. So was this something like in the black community that was talked about or did you get stories passed on to you of what happened? Yes and no. So growing up primarily in the 90s, you had people in their 70s, 80s that would like kind of whisper stuff like, you know, this one thing happened back, you know, back in the day or my parents had to go through X, Y and Z. But you never really had real confirmation of it. You know, I think the first documentary I saw came out in like 2003 or so. And that's when you start to realize like, oh, this really did happen. Because you you always hear stories, right? And there was no Google, right? There weren't that many books written about the massacre. And you didn't really see it in history class that many times, if if at all. There, 83% of people who live in Oklahoma had not heard of the Tulsa Race Massacre. So if you heard about it, it was via word of mouth. And there weren't many ways to really verify that up until recently. So my dad did did read my brother and I a book about it. And we just, you know, we were seven or eight. So we really didn't get into the, the dark parts of it. 
Um, but we talked about, you know, there was a thriving black community and black business was important. And that was that was kind of it. It wasn't until college that I really started to dig into it and understand more of it. And then the research portion of the book where I really learned the majority of it. You know, I didn't find out up until about two weeks before the book released that we had a distant relative that was a survivor. My great grandmother was in Indian, what they had called Indian territory, but um, on Indian reservation at that point in time. So she didn't personally experience it, um, but we had we did have distant relatives. But again, it took 31 years of my life to figure that out. Um, and she had passed last year, so I never got a chance to meet her. But again, that shows you like the the depth of it, but also the level of of mystery that's still out there for so many people that still live in Tulsa. Have you ever wanted to learn how to trade as a side hustle so that you can reach your money goals, like paying off debt, traveling the world, buying a house, and helping you fuel you to financial independence? I've got a special treat for you. I've teamed up with my friend Terry Ijeoma of the Trade and Travel course so that she can help better educate you on what trading is, what day trading is, what swing trading is, if it's right for you to learn how to do this to get into it. Now you can get this free training by going to journeytolaunch.com slash Terry training. That's journeytolaunch.com slash Terry training. And in the training, it's a video or audio training that you can get on demand. You'll learn more about Terry Ijeoma, how she transitioned from her nine to five to being a full-time entrepreneur and traveling the world, how trading allowed her to buy her dream house in cash, the different types of trading, long-term investing, short-term investing, day trading, swing trading, how to trade as a form of income to pay off debt, save and supplement your income. And then of course, who should take Terry's course? We're going to talk about this a trade and travel course because this is not a get rich quick scheme. This is something you have to put time and energy into learning. So we cover all of that and you can get that right now by going to journeytolaunch.com slash Terry training to get the training right now for free. Journeytolaunch.com slash Terry training. And I mean, I can imagine if you growing up there, having family from there, still not knowing about it, how someone like myself, you almost give people room and grace for not knowing up until this point. But I feel like we need to educate ourselves. We need to learn more. And it gives me chills to know how much more things we don't know about that has happened in this country. I mean, we're now seeing a lot of more things because we have cameras, we have phones that can record things. But to imagine the cover-ups and the things that happened back in the day, just it gives me chills to think about. Yeah, it it does. And it's, while it's uncomfortable, these are still important things that we need to know and learn and talk about. I think what I, what I tried to do in my book was to, to link these types of events together. Because I call Tulsa the, the capstone of white supremacy in that era, but it wasn't the only time it ever happened. So I, I mentioned Wilmington in 1898, which was the first successful coup in on American soil. Um, I talk about Rosewood in Florida in 1923 and talk about the Red Summer of 1919. So I, I try and, and weave as many events together so that these other places do get more attention and that we do understand what has really happened and how many times it's happened. Because again, Tulsa gets the most attention, but it's not the only city in America that, that this has occurred. Yeah. And why is it so important before we now talk about rebuilding and what we can do, what the government should or recommendations for them to do? Why is it important to talk about this? Because some people, right, will say 
what this happened a while ago. Now, this isn't, those some people are not me. But what about the people who say, okay, that happened, but what is the point of talking about it? What is the point of bringing it up and rehashing history? A few things. First off, it wasn't that long ago. Like people say 100 years, but we got people who are still alive. So that's that's number one. So don't tell me it's not a long time ago where I can go and look at somebody in, in their face that was there. So that's number one. Uh, number two, 100 years ago is, is two people who are 50 years old. They're not old. And and lastly, those impacts and those effects still exist today. Until I get that back, until I get my hospitals back, uh, um, my Black-owned hospitals, until I get my Black-owned theater, my Black-owned grocery stores, until I get that back, then I will say, all right, we're, we're good, right? People talk about compounding interest and the importance of that and how it's important to invest early. And if you do this, you know, after a decade or two, you have this much money, but you don't talk about the loss. If I lose something 100 years ago or 10 years ago, how that gap is still there. And lastly, I think we love to write off things after a certain point in time, which is weird to me. Um, historically, we're like, oh, well, we're not going to do reparations for slavery because no one was responsible for it. Uh, and that was, you know, depending on how you want to count, that was 150 years ago, it was 400 years ago, however people want to count that. Okay, but what about redlining? They still alive? Have they gotten their reparations? What about police brutality? They're still alive. Have, like, at, at what point, like in the 10 years, 20 years, a day, like at what point do people just want to cut things off and say, well, it doesn't matter, we need to move on. We love to kick the can down the road when it comes to people who look like us. And we love to to discount those impacts. And I think that's the most important thing. So it's important to learn, to know that these things still occur to this day, but it's important to learn because people need to cut the check. And I want, I want you to know what my address is so I can get that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's talk about the rebuilding of it. So how do we recover? I know a lot of this, you know, is not necessarily in our control as like, from the bottom up, but there are some things, but not that much. A lot of this is like top down, like you said, reparations. So what in your opinion, and there may be a list, what are the ways in which we can rebuild from the top down and bottom up? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a very good approach because it, it does take both. And I've, I've argued this as, as well as like, yes, the state of Oklahoma, the city of Tulsa particularly should be cutting the the big checks, but I, I just can't wait for that to happen and just hope that things just, you know, eventually come around. So reparations at the top of the list at the the very top and we'll work down and, and start at the bottom and work up. So that's number one. Number two, it, and on the individual level, I think we do have to focus on what the current times are and what our opportunities are. So a lot of people, when we talk about rebuilding Black Wall Street, they want to buy land, get a brick and mortar business and like circulate the dollar in the Black community, which is cool except that Black folks, when we talk about real estate specifically, our homes are devalued at $48,000 on average. So we're, we're losing value there. When you go to the bank and you ask for a rate, we get charged higher rates. So we're, we're paying more and getting less out of the real estate game when the stock market is out there and we're not necessarily um, investing at the same rates, but we could get a lot more parity there. So I think investing in the stock market is one way to kind of close the gap to a degree and kind of rebuild to a degree. And number two is, is intentionality. What people don't recognize, understand, especially about Greenwood, is that two men primarily started, quote unquote, or founded Greenwood. And they sold that, that land specifically to Black folk. And Black folk took pride in spending with their own people. And they did so to such a degree that some white business owners that were 
you know, on the corner of Greenwood or very close, felt intimidated because they felt that anybody who walked in their store, people were like, no, no, you need to go shop somewhere else. Um, so I think, you know, in this in this era, it's a little harder to do because we're not all connected, right? Like we're shopping online, we're doing all these other things. So it shows that it is work, right? It doesn't just happen. It is work to support um, Black-owned businesses and that we need to adjust our strategy to to include investing in the stock market to really re- rebuild Black Wall Street in the way that is sustainable um, in the 21st century. And I love that you bring up investing. I know that's one of your specialties, investing in the stock market and, and teaching about that. And then this intentionality, because you're right. You know, I had on Sean Rochester, who wrote The Black Tax, and that was one of actually one of my most I say impactful episodes. I'm hoping this will be similar to that for people learning about our history and what to do. And, you know, he said, and he made a really good point. It's not just about only black people buying from black businesses. It's not just us being intentional, other people, other races, other just people buying from us in general is that they should be intentional about it because (laughs) that matters. And yes, we can do it within our own communities, but it really needs to be intentional on all fronts because when we do better, everyone does does better. Yeah, and that's and that's absolutely correct. And I think that's something that people realize. Like y'all do realize that if we get reparations, that money's got to be spent somewhere. Like that helps everybody, right? But but going because I, I interviewed Sean and, and read his book and, and used uh, some of his research in in my book as well. I know he talks about purchase, hire, and deposit. I, I take that and, and bring it to the next level in, in doing what I call strategic spending. So, for example, there are certain categories in the Black community where we, as 15% of the population, we represent in certain categories well over that percent in terms of spending. So, for example, for beauty and grooming, both male and female, we represent close to 20 to 25% of that, um, that category's spending. So we're a quarter of, of their revenue, right? But we're only 15% of the population. So that says that we can ask these businesses to purchase, hire, and deposit into Black-owned banks and to spend on Black-owned co- on owned causes because we make up the market. So think of it like the Electoral College, where it's like Iowa has way more power than with what they really should, right? It's like, why are we, why are we listening to you? Um, but in the Black community, we can say, look, I know that 80% of your money comes from us. So I want you to go deposit your money at this bank. And when we start to, I want you to start a scholarship fund for for this HBCU, because if you don't, (laughs) 80% of your money is is walking out the door. So I think we've got to learn to organize and flex like that, because I think that's how you get that multiplier effect, where you've got um, a Nike at the, the biggest end of the chain or your local hair shop or your local Walgreens or what have you to really start to force and put their weight behind certain things. Uh, we saw how Netflix did this where they wanted to commit, I think it was close to $100 million to Black-owned banks and Black causes because you know that we watch Netflix a whole lot more than some groups, right? Uh, and and stuff like that is like, bruh, I, I can't lose this demographic, right? <laughs> so I think we need to, to find a top 10 or 15 where we o- we're overrepresented as a customer base and start to really force our weight there and have the Netflixes of the world, the Disney Plus of the world, Nike, who, whoever we spend the most money at, to have them start to throw their weight behind the things that, that we need. Yeah. And it's almost like organizing externally outside of these com- uh, companies and forcing their hand if, if we need to. Although, like, why do we need to force your hand? Like, this is, <laughs> this should just be done. 
But it's almost like, is it that we also need people in those companies? Because my, not fair, but one of my things is organizing is, can be hard, right? Getting everyone in the same accord can be difficult in some aspects. And so it almost seems like, wouldn't it be someone inside the company needing to step up and say, this is what we're going to do for the greater good? Yeah, absolutely. I think it does. I think it, it takes allies and it takes people who look like us to be on the board, in the room, behind those marketing campaigns. And I think that's really a change agent because it's, it's hard to like to organize and like get people to pick it, you know, and be outside and like really force change. It's a whole lot easier if you just have to walk like, hey, I got to meet at, at two. I'll bring it up. Right. So, yeah, I think that's that's a big part of the puzzle. In some places it's happening, like somebody was in the room at Netflix at that point in time. Right. I think also we've we do need that public pressure because this time last year, everybody and I mean, everybody had a statement about George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. But where is your support now? Like all of the stuff around voting rights, all the all the things that the black community still needs today. Where are y'all at now? Like, I don't want nobody ever asked for a statement to begin with. But like, I, I want to see everybody who had that statement deposit money in a black owned bank. I want everybody who had, had something to say back then to make a donation to to the more than 100 HBCUs that are out there. Like, that's what makes change. You know, if I can get a few thousand people <laughs> to, to do a petition to get that started, then, then so be it. Um, but it is more efficient if you have people at the table um, and cutting those checks to to do that for us and with us. Yes. And this is, uh, I'm trying to bring up this quote on um, that I saw floating on Twitter and I don't know the source, but I thought that this was very interesting and very true to the Black and African-American experience here in terms of gaining um, footing in this country, building wealth from the top, like up, meaning getting into the rooms so that you can help influence and make these decisions. And then also building up your communities and creating your own table, right? To say, like, if you don't have to wait for them to open the door for you. And if anyone knows where this quote came from, please let me know. But it says, Negroes must do a contradictory thing. They must insist that the doors of Harvard and Yale be kept open to Negroes. And at the same time, build up Howard and Lincoln as if there were no Howard and Yale. And I thought that that speaks to a lot of people that I know, my whole, my own experience and in general, um, what you're talking about, which is investing as like in our communities ourselves, buying black, purchasing black, depositing in systems that uplift us. But then we also need to be in the rooms where the decisions are being made and be a part of these conversations. Yeah, it's a really strange balancing act. And thankfully, you can do both, which is what I'm I'm proud of. I think sometimes we get in this dichotomy where like, you can only do it if you went through this elite door or you can only do it if you, you know, code switch to a degree. Right. I think, you know, you can be Malcolm X and, and Dr. King. I think it's the combination of them that made them so effective. But, yeah, I think it's, it's it is a balancing act and it's important to do both. And then if at all possible, do both at the same time. I think sometimes people think that you have to commit so much time to one and then try and turn around and do the other. But that time is money, right? And it's costly when you don't have that compounding impact. So yeah, it's it's a difficult balancing act, but it's something that people have done. And it's something that we should continue to do to make sure that we're maximizing on the time that we do have. Yes. Now let's get into investing because again, I know that's your specialty. And I get so many people who inquire about getting started. So they have no clue, really. They haven't done it before. They may have a 401k, a Roth, or want to do taxable investing. What are your 
rules of thumb if you have any and tips for people who want to get started? Yeah, I, I would say what I've seen, especially really over the last three years or so, is that some people feel that you need to be perfect, that you need to check everything off on this this box right before you start investing or that your first investment has to be 100% perfect. And I think it is more important to start than to be perfect and to perfect along the way. I think the majority of people need to start off with an index fund. An index fund owns what I like to, to say is the difference between owning the Lakers, which is my favorite team, and owning the entire NBA, where you own all the teams. It don't matter who wins. You got the whole thing. Um, so an index fund, if you don't do nothing else, you are fine there. You don't have to be distracted by Bitcoin. You don't have to be distracted by all these individual stocks. It's fine if you do it, right? But do take care of the basics first. That's the first thing. And the second thing is like, and I've, I've seen this, and I think that's, that's an important part is from whether it's my millionaire clients, whether it's my kids and their investments, whether it's my own investments, it doesn't have to be complicated. And the people that you see that have all of these fancy charts, that use all these crazy terms, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are performing so much better than somebody else. And that simple still works. Simple can still be incredibly profitable and simple can still build you financial freedom. I've seen people who have all these crazy equations and do all this stuff. I'm like, well, how much how much money did you make? And like, well, you know, I made a hundred dollars more than what you did. I'm like, you did that for a hundred dollars? <laughs> like that was that was the difference. So don't 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 be distracted by that. Like, keep it simple. Simple is fine. Simple is gonna get you to what you need to do. And don't put pressure on yourself to be perfect out the gate. And I would say, lastly, is just be patient. The majority of millionaires don't get there overnight, and that's okay. But you do have to start. If you don't start, it ain't gonna happen. And I think that's the the thing people need to realize as well. Right. And when you say start, and again, I want to have a little disclaimer, you know, Kevin and I, we're not giving you direct investment advice, but um, you should always do your due diligence and check with a professional or hire someone like Kevin. But what is it like when you say start with the basics? Because I have an idea what that means. And what I tell people to do, is it like literally going into if you have a 401k right now and you have a job that has one looking at where you invested there, opening up a Roth? Like what is the basics for you? Well, that, that the absolute basics are if you have a 401k right now, put money in it and make sure that you go and click and tell that money to go into one of the, the options that you have there. And I said for a few reasons. Number one, for whatever reason, we have taken like 401ks and put that in something that's not investing. And I don't know how or when this starts to happen, but people are like, yeah, I don't invest. I'm like, do you have 401k? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, so you're investing. You good. Like that, that counts. What do you mean? So that's, that's number one. People, like anytime I say that, people always ask me how much. General, right? But most people should should be putting somewhere between 12 to 15%. Now go and talk to your financial professional to see what exactly, where exactly you need to be based on your, your individual goals. But that's what, that's like a rule of thumb, a benchmark. So that's number one. If you do that and you do nothing else, you are still going to be incredibly successful. So you don't have to put pressure on yourself to go and do all these other things. It does help to have a Roth IRA. I think that is something for most people is good to have as well. Those are places you can start. I think, again, it's really important for me to emphasize this. Opening the account and putting money into it, that's that's not enough. You have to go and actually choose the investments you that you want to have. If you have a 401k, they'll give you a list and you decide, you know, 5% here or what have you. 
that's where you're going to start to see the money grow. And the longer you do it, the more growth that you generally will see. And that's when it starts to get fun, right? It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be real slow in the beginning, but it's slow and sudden. And I'm telling you, when it hits that that sudden mark, that's when you realize like, oh, okay, I got something here. Um, I'm really starting to see some progress. And I'm so glad you brought up about actually, you know, it's one thing to fund or open the account, but then you have to choose your investments. And I, I, I know some people listen to this that are going to make money just from listening to this by just going in and checking and then realizing they have not been investing the money that has just been sitting in a money market account earning nothing. So go check your accounts. If you opened up a Roth IRA or you are invested in your 401k, even if you have taxable investments, some people, I help my mom and my sisters open up their accounts and they had failed to, this is probably on me too, because I'm just like, all right, follow up like in a week to once it's funded to now check your investments. But I have so many people tell me that they've made that mistake before. And I have too, honestly, years ago. Yeah. And I I had a client, an unfortunate story, a, a client who was ready to retire um, and she had $300,000. She's like, yeah, I don't understand why my money hasn't grown. It was because 99% of that money had been in cash the whole time. It hadn't grown. And it's, I liken it to turning on the oven, but you ain't put nothing in there. The oven is on, but you you haven't cooked nothing. And I think that's that's the important thing. Like you you have to pick what you want to bake, right? You have to pick the investment that you want to grow over time. So just having an having an oven and putting and turning the oven to three fifty or four fifty, that's that's not really doing it, right? You're close, but you haven't really done it. So it's extremely important to make sure that your money is invested in something because again, that's what's going to get that progress. That's what's going to get the meal started, and that's what you're going to have to eat on, right? In in retirement. Yes. Yes. Okay. So Kevin, thank you so much for sharing more about this much needed topic. That is something that continues to impact people today. Please let everyone know where they can find more about your book and then you like follow up on your story and your investing journey. Yeah. So you can find me on all social medias at building bread. Um, you can also find out more about the book at buildingbread.com slash blueprint. Y'all are be hearing and seeing a lot of me. <laughs> so uh, make sure you share this episode and uh, hit me up on social media. Yes. The book again is called From Burning to Blueprint, Rebuilding Black Wall Street After a Century of Silence. Thank you, Kevin, once again. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kevin Matthews. If you did, please Tag me on social media. I'm on Instagram mostly, but on Twitter and Facebook too. But take a screenshot. Tell me something you learned. Did you know about this? Did you learn about this in school? Did you recently find out about it? No shame, but let us know. Screenshot, tag me at Journey to Launch and at Building Bread. That's Kevin's Instagram. And let us know what you thought, what your takeaway was from this conversation. And then if you want to share this, you can click more details or wherever you're listening to this, more details, and it should be a link, copy link. Send this link to someone who needs to hear this conversation. You can also send them to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 225. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, 
Here are four ways that you can support me and the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here, so show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.